Volume okay. All right. So, like most things, this is actually a long story. And I want to start with how infrared astronomy really got started. It got started with a guy named Koblenz, who developed a really sensitive infrared detector. It was basically what we call a bolometer or a thermistor. It had a sensitive element. And what he did at the breakthrough was he put it in a vacuum so that this element was really isolated from heat coming in from outside. And he actually measured more than 100 stars in 1914. And so that was really the start of infrared astronomy. This was actually almost the start of photoelectric measurements, too. And maybe you remember the poster for 2009, the International Year of Astronomy. I tried to promote really hard the 100th anniversary of infrared astronomy, but I didn't have much success. But that was really important as a landmark in thinking about going to other spectral regions. This was really the first time somebody had done serious astronomy at something other than optical wavelengths. And it was also the start of photoelectric photometry. And this was developed by Pettit and Nicholson, who used the 100-inch telescope. And they built a series of thermistors. And about eight years ago, I was asked to go to a conference on the 400th anniversary of the invention of the telescope. You can guess that was in the Netherlands. Um, and I actually tried to figure out how well these de detectors work. And I found to my shock that they work 10 times better than the best thermistors you can buy now. The, these guys really did a great job. And they developed a way to make a graph of the signals coming out of their detectors. They had a photographic plate down in the basement of the 100-inch telescope, and then a galvanometer sensitive electric meter that had a light beam that went into it. And the light beam then came off. And as the galvanometer turned a little bit in proportion to the electricity coming from these detectors, the light beam would go on the photographic plate, which they drove with a screw. And so you get a graph of the signal coming out of these detectors once you develop the photographic plate. So very creative. And this is an example of their signals. And this is very good photometry. You put the star on one of these thermistors, you put it on another, you get the signal going back and forth. And in fact, it was so good that the limitation in interpreting these results was the visible photometry, which was still really visible, human eye. So fantastic start, 1929. Should have taken off, right? You have this big breakthrough in a new spectral region, and that's, that's really exciting. Nothing happened. And Felgut is an example of used the new technology coming out of World War II of lead sulfide cell, built himself an infrared photometry, demonstrated on the sky, published a paper, and nothing happened. So this is really a problem. And in writing this, getting ready for this talk about the history of infrared astronomy, I was totally puzzled. Because we've all been taught that there's a technological breakthrough. Everybody jumps on it, and the new field takes off. Twice, this didn't happen. 
And in fact, modern infrared astronomy waited until the 1960s, and there were really three central guys. Gerard Kuiper, the same one that Caitlin told you about, Harold Johnson and Frank Lowe, and this is kind of a joke. If you have a photometric system, you have to maintain it by taking observations of stars that you understand. So here's Harold maintaining his photometric system on the 28-inch telescope that at that point was up on the Catalinas. So why didn't the field take off? Why did it wait till the 60s and 70s? Well, it wasn't because of the astronomers getting interested in it. Early infrared astronomy had, I counted up, 11 physicists involved and one astronomer. That was a really important astronomer. His name was Harold Johnson. But everyone else was a physicist. So what do you think? What's missing here? <laughs> Well, this was really an interesting puzzle, and I finally realized in the 1960s, a lot of people got interested. There were different groups. And then I thought about Koblenz and Pettit and Nicholson. You know, you put all this effort in, you develop an incredible machine to do infrared astronomy. You take a lot of, it turns out, their data, Pettit and Nicholson, their data were really accurate, just as accurate as the measurements that Harold Johnson made in the 60s. You write the paper, and nobody gives a damn. Think how depressing that must be. You put your whole career into developing this machine for a big breakthrough in astronomy, and other astronomers could care less. And so what was really different was you had all these groups in the 60s that really got interested. And in a certain sense, Competition is the sincerest form of flattery, and these groups competed fiercely with each other. So that meant you knew there were, a lot, there were at least some people out there that thought what you were doing was really important and really unique. And the central part of that was Kuiper established the Lunar and, Lunar and Planetary Lab across the street. He attracted Harold Johnson to come to his laboratory at that point, Frank Lowe basically almost hero-worshipped Harold Johnson. He had, Harold had introduced him to using a detector that he had developed in infrared astronomy, and so Frank came. And so these were the three central figures in the early development of infrared astronomy, all of them housed across the street in the Lunar and Planetary Lab. And so actually, uh, you can see Frank's invention, it was a further development of Koblenz thermistor. This time it's called a germanium bolometer, and it's in what we call the museum that's in the corridor to the southwest of, of the foyer. So the, this was the central laboratory where people were really focused on developing infrared astronomy. It wasn't a sidelight. Uh, we were for some in this building, we were called those jokers across the street. So you can see we didn't immediately command respect from everybody who was a sort of conventional astronomer. OK, so the central thing that particularly Frank Lowe developed, because this is where his bolometer really worked well, was to work in what we call the deep thermal infrared. This is around a wavelength of 10 microns. 
where all of you are glowing brightly. Remember my poster of the 100th anniversary of infrared astronomy. Those were infrared pictures of real human beings glowing brightly, taken around the wavelength of 10 microns. And the problem is to do astronomy from the ground at 10 microns, the atmosphere is glowing brightly, the wind is blowing nodules of atmosphere past your telescope, and I liken it to detecting a match in a blast furnace, where the match is the star you want to look at, and the blast furnace is the atmosphere making it really hard. So there is a match there, but it's not so easy. And in fact, the history of photometry measurements at 10 microns goes like this. This is the sensitivity. This is the year. This is when I started in 1970 as a postdoc working for Frank Lowe. If this was the sensitivity that we achieved on the 61-inch telescope in the Catalinas. But if I correct it, I actually found my old photometer the other day. If, if it still works, like if I could put it on an eight-meter telescope, it would have this sensitivity. And I made a little improvement. And then modern telescope, same photometer, no gain. And that's because of all these, this bright thermal background that you have to fight to do photometry from the, the ground at that wavelength. At two microns, shorter wavelengths, there was, there's not so much thermal background and things improved a lot until they hit a limit also. The solution is put your telescope in space. And for a while, we thought the way to do that was to put the telescope inside a, a door or a thermos jug and fill the rest of the door with liquid helium, which will cool it down close to absolute zero. And that worked great. That was the IRAS satellite, the ISO satellite. Um, the problem is the door has to be strong enough to hold out the atmosphere so it's heavy and you can't make it very big. And so at one point when we were desperate about how to make Spitzer work, Frank Lowe had this inspiration which was actually a repeat of something a guy named Tim Harden had suggested, that if you build your telescope and you launch it and you've done it so it can radiate its energy into space, it will cool down just because space is cold. And so you can get rid of all that liquid helium. You need a little bit to cool the instruments. And so this was Frank's sketch of how to build a new kind of infrared telescope. And if you get one of those in space and you want to find the match, hey, oh, it's a lot easier, isn't it? OK. So the history now of the sensitivity achieved in infrared astronomy built around cold telescopes, like the one I showed you Frank's sketch of. Sensitivity goes like this. This is where I started. This was my first photometer. This was my advanced photometer. This is the ISO mission that Europe launched, um, no, I'm sorry, this is IRAS. This is the ISO mission that Europe launched. This is Spitzer mission, factor of two every nine and a half months. You think computers have improved a lot. Infrared astronomy has proved more. And I'm going to show you this is where the mid-infrared instrument comes in. The mid-infrared instrument on JWST is going to continue this incredible growth. I started here. This will be 50 times this doubling factor in my career. Excuse me, it'll, well, actually, I, I've, it will be 10 to the 20 times, much more than 50, sorry, in 50 years. <laughs>
But what's also important is by taking full advantage of Frank's idea of cooling the telescope by radiating energy off into space, JWST is the first telescope that is big. In fact, it's just as big as the MMT launched into space. All the previous telescopes start out here. They all, we were kind of shy. We never made a telescope bigger than one meter in aperture in the past. And that was conditioned by having to fit them inside a Dewar, a thermos jug. And even with Spitzer, we had gotten so beat down by the problems of selling that space mission that when we found a way to make it bigger, we didn't dare do it. We were afraid that we would get canceled if we were so courageous as to take advantage of what we now knew how to do. So JWC is going to be big. Resolution goes in proportion to diameter. So if Spitzer, for example, had a six arc second beam at 20 microns, JWST has an eight times smaller, so it's better than one arc second beam at at 20, at 20 microns. And so here's an example. Here's the way, if, if you could take a picture of JWST with Spitzer, how it would look at 20 microns. There's how it, would, it will look with JWST. Tremendous improvement in what you can learn. So how did I get involved? How did this lead? Obviously, there's a lot of history here. And in fact, this started with NIRCAM and Marsha, whose computer I'm using, and I spent a whole summer writing a proposal for NIRCAM, which fortunately we was successful, and so we have a big project that she's leading. There was a different job, which was to be the science team lead for the mid-infrared instrument, a little different from being a principal investigator. And it, the NIRCAM proposal went to Lockheed, two weeks before it was due so they could do all the production and printing and so on. And so I had two weeks of idleness and I thought, well, why don't I just write a proposal as a backup that if I apply for the mid-infrared instrument, if they turn her down on the infrared camera, maybe one of us will still get involved. So the telephone call came to her, said, you've been picked. And I said, okay. Five minutes later, the call came to me saying, you're picked. And so this is why we have a family involvement and why I ended up almost as an afterthought deeply involved with a mid-infrared instrument. So here it is, ready to roll, and it was really complicated. It was been, in terms of management, it was built. Europe does things differently, of course, because they don't have states, they have countries. And so there are 10 different countries that can, contributed important parts to this instrument. And it also, of course, there's the University of Arizona, but the Jet Propulsion Lab was picked as the lead NASA center. And so they built the electronics and the detectors, which hardly show in this picture. And the Europeans, 10 different countries, built the rest of the instrument that's here. And so this was just as it was delivered, literally ready to roll out onto the truck to take it to the airplane to bring it to the United States. And just to show you, to, to brag about how sensitive this instrument is, you've already heard a little bit about studying other planets. It's turned out something that nobody anticipated 20 years ago, but a really powerful way to study planets is to look at when they, there's a transit in front of the star that they're orbiting, or even 
better if they go behind that star. And why this is better is that you see the planet face on, and then it goes behind the star and it's blotted out. And so in this case, if you just look at this system, and you won't be able to see any details, you'll just be able to see everything added together, you'll see this, the emission from the star plus a tiny little increment from the planet. And then when the planet goes behind the star, that tiny little increment goes away. So if you subtract before to after, you can actually get a spectrum of the planet. Pretty incredible that that can be done, but it does work. And so here's a calculation that somebody did about a mythical exoplanet that's going to be discovered by the TESS satellite, which is about to be, going to be launched in about a year. And this mythical, they did a simulation of a spectrum and this planet, unfortunately, has global warming because it has a strong carbon dioxide absorption, which is exactly why we're worried about carbon dioxide and carbon footprint. And as it goes into eclipse, this was a realistic simulation of what signal you might get relative to the noise from the detectors and so on. If you do that experiment where you take a measurement of the star plus the planet, you let the planet go behind the star, you subtract, and you look at the residual. And so this is an imaginary spectrum of an imaginary planet, but we really think we're going to find this planet with a test satellite. And if we look, and the simulation went on to look at the sensitivity of the mid-infrared instrument on JWST, if you observe this planet, we have two different filters, one of which is centered on the carbon dioxide, the other of which is centered on the bright part where you don't have the absorption from the carbon dioxide. And MURI could detect the carbon dioxide on this planet. In other words, in theory, we could see if there's a civilization there that is, has a big carbon footprint and they're going to get wiped out by global warming just before we do. Okay. Well, that's kind of bragging, but that's a little bit too off the wall speculative and takes too much time for the little piece of guaranteed time I've been granted because of the work I put in on this instrument. And so I'm just going to show you quickly a program that I want to do, which illustrates the power of going to different spectral regions and thinking a little different way about problems. So this is a poster that an astronomer named Phil Hopkins put together about 10 years ago. And I don't think it's quite right, but it shows the power of a nice poster. Everybody shows this poster of how you get quasars. Active galactic nuclei is what we call them. This is where there's a really massive black hole in the center of a galaxy. Matter's falling into it, and it's blazing bright. This is the second really fundamental form of energy, optical energy, X-ray energy that we see in the universe. The first is stars, the second one is accretion onto massive black holes. And Hopkins' idea was you have a galaxy isolated, well maybe it's not totally isolated, it's in a small group like the local group, and because there are neighboring galaxies you eventually have a collision and these two galaxies merge. And when that happens, 
the conditions are right for all the gas in the galaxies to fall down into the center of the merged galaxy. You take two galaxies, make them into one, the stars sort of go into different orbits, but there's no way that they can fall down into the center because there's no friction for the stars. But the gas has friction where the gas clouds run into each other, and they fall down into the core. They coalesce. You have a big episode of star formation, and then because some of the gas that fell down into the center falls into the black hole, the quasar flares up because you get all this new source of energy. And so this was Hopkins' idea, and you end up eventually with just an elliptical galaxy. All the gas has been used up mostly by star formation, and it's just a boring-looking elliptical. And this is a graph that, it, of course, a good poster has to have the whole story here. The graph is the, the story if the, pic the rest of the pictures don't tell. This is the rate of forming stars. When the galaxies coalesce, the molecular clouds become unstable. There's a big increase in star formation, and then it drops off. And this is the output of the matter falling into the black hole, the quasar. And it flares up just a little later, but in coincidence with the late time of this big burst of star formation. And then it slowly decays away. That's, that's the poster. But is it right? So this is a picture of how these, this galaxy center might look with the nucleus, the black hole hidden down here, but lots of gas and dust blotting out the view in most of the spectral ranges. And astronomers have felt that the only way to really see this is to x-ray it, or rather to look in really bright x-rays. Um, but. There's a satellite called New Star that's specially built to look at the really hard, high-energy X-rays that are sensitive for this. It should be bright from this nucleus, and it's not working. These galaxies don't seem to have the strong X-ray. I mean, the satellite's working, but the bright, the hard X-rays don't seem to be there. And so, either the X-rays can't get out, or the quasar isn't there. Right? I mean. And, and the real question is, is the quasar there, not whether the x-rays get out. So astronomically, we want to find out. So here is a solution. This is a plot of basically the absorption in interstellar material, like the material that blots out the view of one of these galaxies. The absorption is really small over here in the very energetic x-ray region but it's also small here in the infrared. And there is an emission line of neon at 7.65 microns that is, takes so much energy to excite it that it can't be done by stars. It has to be excited basically by soft x-rays. And so that's a way to do x-ray astronomy better than the x-ray astronomers can. They don't like it when I say this, but it's true. <laughs> so. Infrared line, we can look with Miri for this line and look for an active nucleus. This is a picture of the most famous of one of these infrared galaxies where there's been a merger. Is there an active nucleus in here? We can look down to a tiny, tiny fraction of the energy that's coming out due to the star formation and see if there really could possibly be an active nucleus down in there, something that 
has been looked at with this new star satellite and the results are inconclusive. So stay tuned. We can't wait to get these measurements. And in fact, I got an email from former Stewart Observatory Director Ray Wyman yesterday with a question, do you think JWST will get off on schedule? He can't wait either. And I answered him, of course, Ray, we just don't know the schedule. <laughs> okay. Thank you, George. Are there questions? <laughs>